you're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast once again is Brendan Cradell, Associate Professor of Cinema Studies at Oakland University, coming back to the podcast for the third time. And today we're discussing adaptations. We always have that debate of whether or not the movie actually captured the essence of the great novel that it was based on. You often hear people say the book was better. Well, we are here to talk about a number of different categories that we have created for uh, some of the most famous film adaptations that were created from source material that was at first published in a book and usually beloved as a book. But let's talk about the merits of the films themselves. We have a lot of films to go through. I'm very excited for this chat. And the reason we're having Brendan Cordell back on this podcast is that we are intending to start a film discussion group later on this year, probably in the autumn, where we're going to be meeting regularly to discuss a movie that is based on a book. Are we going to talk about everything that the movie didn't get right and everything that the movie left out? Maybe so, maybe not. But we really want this film discussion group to be about, as I said, the merits of the film. And let's talk about the creative process involved, the director and the screenwriter and the actors, and maybe any of the other variables that maybe came into the production process. But yes, we will also talk about the book. So I want you to look forward to that. I want you to be excited about that. Brendan and I have often talked about how the library in general, any public library, but hopefully especially the Ferndale Library can be a place where we can get together and have dialogues about great works of art, whether they are literature bound in a book or if they are art hanging on the wall or if they are film. The library is a community center for that where we can meet and talk about that. And those conversations can be culturally enriching. So we'll meet every month. We'll watch a movie that's based on a book. We will talk about it and we'll have Brendan from the Oakland University's Cinema Studies Department coming in to help us facilitate those conversations. I think it's going to be very engaging. And I thank you for tuning into this episode where we're going to be talking about, as I said, more than a dozen films, maybe even two dozen films that were based on books. was very eager to talk to you about something very specific today, and that is the grand tradition, or whatever you call it, of major motion pictures adapting usually classic works of literature, but as we've gone into the 90s and the 2000s, just about any popular book, if it's selling enough, can become a movie. You never know. But I wanted maybe you to, to contextualize this for us. At the dawn of film, 1901... <laughs> George Melier yeah. era, there was this this push and pull between people really not thinking that film was legitimate yet because we had the theater, we had live actors. What was what were these moving pictures? Uh, it seemed a little uh, base. I remember there were there were critics of it who said the theater was still better. Yada yada yada. So I think that early on you started to see filmmakers trying to adapt classic works of literature. I know. Uh, the fan of the opera was very early. Sure. I know Anna Karenina got out there and and what have you. So I think that maybe that was a gesture to try to legitimize film as as the high art that it could be. And then if I can just move us through the century, the 30s and 40s and 50s, we have the studio system and we have hired guns who are writing these scripts. And you have the occasional Wuthering Heights in there and Gone with the Wind. But 
I don't feel like you see it as often as, as it was. And then it starts to come back after some guy named Steven Spielberg makes a movie called Jaws. That was yeah. a major success. And in the 80s, if I could just keep rambling here, I think that you start to <laughs> you start to see that trend go up. And maybe it's attempts again for prestige films, for award films, World According to Garp, Passage to India, etc. And then Steven Spielberg makes another movie called Jurassic Park in the 90s. And then I feel like it's a free-for-all from there. Everyone wants to make movies out of books after that. That's my view of it. Uh, you've you've thrown the gauntlet here, so let's see. If, <laughs> if I went back, all the way back, I'm reminded of a, one of my most cherished T-shirts was a birthday present from a friend of mine. Shout out to Enrique Gonzalez. And it says on it, movies ruining the book since 1920. <laughs> And I didn't have the heart to tell them that they've been ruining the book for a few more years than that. Even. Yeah, 1912 but the sentiment easily. is spot on. And I think you're right, Jeff, that the, the impulse to legitimacy is one that's both accurate and also I think it's very easy for us today to say that and make it seem as if it's a century old kind of way of thinking. But I think the same thing when we look today at a generation of celebrities whose fame stems from their YouTube channels or mm -hmm. from their Instagram profiles. The desire to be taken seriously is just as real today, I think, as it was at that time as when you had a, a new medium that was minting a bunch of celebrities. People who very often in those days had names that were as ambiguous as those celebrities today, right? The biograph girl of the late 1900s is essentially the PewDiePie of <laughs> today. Right. And the question becomes how we format this into a way that looks familiar and looks, as you say, legitimate to mm -hmm. us. And the literature adaptation, I think you're absolutely right, is a, a key move made in a desire to bring some kind of stability, maybe, to this concept. And actually, when I think of that, you're certainly right that Phantom of the Opera and the French serials like Fantomas and the Sherlock Holmes and them were all being adapted in the first years of the movie industry. But I think what's really notable is the birth of Hollywood was the move in the mid-19-teens by filmmakers to move out to California for a variety of reasons to make movies. And that first movie that we really think of as setting that, that template for what a Hollywood movie could be is Birth of a Nation, mm -hmm. uh, which itself is an adaptation of, of Dixon's novel, The Klansman. And so take everything that you will from that. You know, right. the original sin of racism is also the original sin of Hollywood. Right. Um, and, and also the move to bring legitimacy into the movie business is right there from the beginning of Hollywood with mm -hmm. the adaptation of The Watchmen, or <laughs> of The Klansman, rather. The Watchmen is a very different adaptation. That did inform um, us of <laughs> structural racism going back to the 20s. That, <laughs> yeah. Then if I fast forward a little bit to follow the thread of what you're saying, is the thing that strikes me, actually thinking about the, the, the studio era, mm -hmm. is that the studios were voracious consumers of cultural capital. You know, if you demonstrated any capacity to create theater, dance, swimming, shout out Esther Williams, the studios would find a way to monetize you. And it's difficult to to get beyond the reaches of the studio. So difficult, in fact, that the 
greatest writers of their time. You know, William Faulkner is doing rewrite for the studios and F. Scott Fitzgerald and these writers who are the, you know, defining novelists of their era. That's not true anymore. Right. And so in a way, I, the relationship between literature with capital L and Hollywood might be even at its closest at this time, if only because Hollywood bought up all of the literary talent. You publish a short story in The New Yorker and a contract from MGM would be on your desk the next day. You know, mm -hmm. Move out to Los Angeles and, and write up some uh, dialogue for us. You were talking, we were talking earlier about, because we have a whole list of categories here that we want to dissect. And the first category is exactly what we already touched on, is these attempts at faithful adaptations of classic literature. And you had suggested that that format of the feature film mm -hmm. is inherently biased against these kinds of adaptations, that, that, that the recourse maybe then is to try serials, try six-part miniseries, etc., right? Yeah. No matter how many times we try it, I mean, it's been thousands at least over the years, we, we don't ever learn the lesson that fundamentally a book and a film are different things. Truly. And to take, you know, Listeners who have held the screenplay in their hand will know this, but generally speaking, the rule of thumb in the movie business is that a page of a screenplay should last about a minute of screen time. So if you think of a regular feature as being, you know, in the range of two hours, which is probably even on the long side, uh, you're talking about a 100 to 120 page document, mm -hmm. this the screenplay. And, uh, and that's formatted loosely to get to 100, 120 pages. Every novel that you're going to read is obviously longer, much longer than that. So taking this conceptually dense thing and trying to to adapt it in such a way as to maintain some fidelity to the novel while at the same time making a film that is compelling is almost an impossible trick to pull off. And those adaptations that that fall too far in the camp of maintaining fidelity are very often those that are least interesting to watch as films. But the trouble, of course, is when you're adapting a source text that is beloved or universally respected, you can't go too far mm -hmm. in straying from the source text without alienating your potential audience. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that dynamic has been there throughout throughout the years. Uh, I'm reminded of a famous line of critique of, of Francois Truffaut's who who thought that that represented the worst tradition, although ironically he called it the cinema of quality, but the worst tradition of French filmmaking was this sort of thoughtless color by numbers adaptation of classic pieces of literature to the screen by just, you know, transmuting these plot points from page to, to script took away all of the creative part of making films. And I'm afraid we still might do that from time to time today. Another phenomenon that we see now, and there's just something in me that that glitches a little bit when I see a billboard that says Handmaid's Tale season five coming <laughs> soon. And that's a less than 400 page novel from Margaret Atwood from 35 years ago. And yet we now have something close to what, 50 episodes of content. Same with Game of Thrones, maybe going off the rails when they run out of yeah. space for George R. R. Martin. So that's a whole other phenomenon. Yeah, you're right. I mean, those are both very good examples, too, of something that with notable exceptions in the literary world, we think of the novel as being the base unit of of culture, right? And we can certainly immediately think of examples of 
posthumous novels by authors who are likely the the novel has been ghostwritten in order to maintain the cachet of whatever the spy writer or detective writer might be. Mm -hmm. But for literary fiction, certainly for someone like Margaret Atwood, the novel is the novel. And we don't usually talk in terms of monetizing content over different media platforms in the way that we would expect a studio to. But in the examples you give, uh, which are both you know clear examples of this phenomenon, those are too big to f- stop at this point. You know, Handmaid's Tale, certainly Game of Thrones, have such a, a devoted or had in the former case, the latter case, have such a devoted following and are making so much money for their studios that the people who are being paid to write these new episodes are going to continue to be paid to write these new episodes. They're not going to stop writing. The studio is not going to stop cutting the checks, and so whether or not it has anything to do with The Handmaid's Tale or with whatever George Martin has in his head as to what the ending of it is, these things take a life of their own. Right, um, they do. And the studios the studios ensure that they keep doing CPR on these intellectual properties well after the authors have anything to say about it. Right. I feel like the phenomenon of the book was better really, really amplified uh, from the 90s onward. Because I want to say that there there are these instances in which the film and the book are separate and equal. Uh, one of my favorite mm-hmm. films is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And mm-hmm. I have read the book, and I enjoy the book for what it is. I'm well aware, as is uh, are lots of fans of The Shining, that Stephen King notoriously hates the 1980 <laughs> adaptation. But there are these instances, and uh, you had talked about uh, off mic this this tendency of Hitchcock to do this with Patricia Highsmith's Strangers on a Train and there's a few mm-hmm. other examples out there where there it is a great book and it is classic literature but the director decides to do their own thing yeah you know I think when we think about the great directors of the American cinema and we think about Hitchcock we mm-hmm. think about Kubrick Francis Ford Coppola these oh, are yeah. people who are great directors and yet are not working from original screenplays, right? I mean, again and again and again, they return to this idea of adapting existing works of literature. And what makes them great filmmakers is their ability to produce adaptations that bear a distinctly different fingerprint Mm -hmm. that these are... When you're watching The Godfather, Mm -hmm. you're at every moment aware that you're watching a film. and And it takes nothing away from Mario Puzo's book. It it remains a great book and it remains a great film all at the same time. And Stephen King, I'd like to think in his maturity, can probably acknowledge the same about The Shining. Um, You know, he's certainly been happy that there have been other adaptations made that are more faithful to his book, but Kubrick's film is remarkable. Visceral. And it is remarkably different from, (laughs) from Stephen King, right? Right. And for those filmmakers, Hitchcock, certainly took inspiration from the works literature that he was adapting screenplay from, but he felt that he owed nothing in particular to the authors of those books. And and frankly, I think that's the attitude that you have to take. Right. You know, if you're using that as a source text, that should be the inspiration, but it should be nothing more than the inspiration. You're giving in to a different impulse that shouldn't be registering. Yeah. It's worth noting how visceral and how alive a film is and that extra thrill when you're in a theater experiencing it with with 50 other or 100 other people, whereas the novel is very solitude, your own pers- your own experience. But we have yeah. we have films out there 
and I can just say these things. Make an offer you can't refuse. Here's Johnny. You're going to need a bigger boat. Now, we don't quote right. We don't quote lines from literature like this. We, we have fun because it's a thrill to see these lines on the screen. Uh, maybe maybe I'm just for fun wondering whether an author of a, of a 300-page book uh, envies that quotability. <laughs> That's a side note. Yeah. You know, I think it's an interesting point you raised, Jeff, because when we, you know, to take here's Johnny's example, when we right. think about that moment, it's fixed in our mind, right? I mean, the face that is saying the line we know is Jack Nicholson's. We know what the mise-en-scene of that line's delivery is. All of the um, ambiguity that comes from the act of reading where we get to paint in the lines is removed. Yeah. I mean, that's what the film does is it offers us a visualization of what this story looks like. And some of the most harrowing moments that I can think of in my own experience of literature come through, as you say, that solitary act of reading and being petrified because of my imagination, which is not the same, I think, as if we're watching The Silence of the Lambs, say, when the film has done that imaginative work or a large part of that imaginative work for mm -hmm. me, which isn't to say that one is better than the other, uh, but to recognize that those are two very distinct ways of telling a similar story right. and require a, a different capacity on the part of the author as opposed to the filmmaker. We've been talking about movies that are, for lack of a less generous word, unfaithful. Uh, in a way, uh, the the Shining or Apocalypse Now diverging from their their source material. There is this other group that does change things up, but follows the same narrative arcs, the in to an extent the same the same plot points. We have these movies that will take a take a book and maybe just set it in a different city. Movies mm. that take a very classic work and adapt it to a modern era, usually in a in a glitzy city again, usually American city. We had a high fidelity. Nick Hornby set it's set over in the in London, I believe. We bring it here to John John Cusack in Chicago, and it it works. But it's a change that still follows the mold, right? Yeah, you know, I, there are a few different things going on here. Some of which you know, we might chalk up to creative adaptations, and some of which may be very much contractually driven. Um, you know. I think of all of the different Shakespeare adaptations, the modernizations of Shakespeare, right, um, that uh, certainly bring something new to how we approach these these plays that we're very familiar with. Um, or Austin. And in this, yeah, uh, right. And we could add uh, Jane Austen to this and all sorts of examples of these classic stories being updated to the modern time, um, some of which are very interesting, some of which we could leave by the side. But... <laughs> But then, and you know, and I'm speculating here. I actually don't know this to be true. But with a with a the case of a, a contemporary novel like like Hornby's uh, High Fidelity, it's also the case that when an adaptation or any film is being made, there are so many uh, negotiations that have to happen about who the stars are that are going to be attached to the film, who the director is, what their conditions of attachment are. And uh, it's entirely possible, at least certainly we can speculate, that a condition of getting Cusack to, to play that part is relocating the film from London to the U.S. So I, I guess I, I'm driving the point that sometimes these questions about adaptation are driven by creative impulse. Certainly when Kubrick rewrites The Shining, it's done to 
pull different themes from a, a story. Uh, but sometimes it's also entirely driven by market dynamics. Uh, and that doesn't make the film any less interesting. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that high fidelity of the book and high fidelity of the film can stand apart as both worthy of our time, despite the fact that they take divergent paths through the world. We have had situations where I'll just say a star is born. We've had uh, <laughs> that's yeah. we've had a, a new for the joke has been we've almost had a new star is born almost every twenty years. It's maybe closer to every every thirty years, and there have been four versions at this point. There have been many many versions of Little Women, including Greta Gerwig's most recent. And right, there's this other phenomenon, and I think we will probably see probably more of it happening every once in a while. But there are films that are produced in Europe or elsewhere that were based on European works. And then they're bringing them over here to American Hollywood system. Uh, girl, uh, girl with great dragon tattoos from Sweden comes to mind. Mm-hmm. That's a, that, that, that feels like it complicates things even further. Uh, you know, the signal almost gets blurred with, with each new, uh, re-sketching. Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. You're, you're pointing in my mind in, at, at a couple of things there. One of which is a reminder that's predates literature itself. I mean, it it reminds us of the oral tradition that Mm -hmm. we enjoy hearing the same stories told again and again. That's the myth-making function. The hero's journey, Luke Skywalker, it all fits. Right. And so certainly Hollywood loves to tell the story of A Star is Born because it is the foundational myth of Hollywood um, and the cautionary myth of Hollywood uh, wrapped up into one. So each new generation revisits it to bring to it what is unique to that generation. But fundamentally, the story hasn't really changed since the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And and that's worth noting. Also worth noting, I think, and you're pointing to this and talking about the girl with the dragon tattoo. But I, I actually, I would think even further back to the films that we were talking about last time mm-hmm. I was chatting with you, the films of Akira Kurosawa, that filmmaking and storytelling has been global almost since the beginning, mm-hmm. actually. And uh, that global circulation of storytelling works in both directions so that the the same sort of structures of storytelling that emerge out of Hollywood influence the way in which storytellers in other countries are approaching how they tell their stories. And then likewise, that recirculates back to Hollywood um, and we see this uh, constant evolution in the way that that filmmaking gets made. Now, that's the positive spin on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the negative spin would be that the girl with the pearl, uh, the girl with dragon tattoo, the girl with pearl earrings, is a different film. Right, the girl with the dragon tattoo is is a great film in its original, and the need for a remake in order to make it presumably more palatable to American audiences is. Uh, in some way of thinking, unfortunate. We could have used that time uh, to make another film that was more interesting. Maybe. Right. But um, but still, you know, it was a good, good film, the American version. And I know we have more like it uh, ahead of us. So I'm sure that phenomenon of the remake won't, won't die off. Yeah. And even as a, as a tangent, there are folks out there who are fans of that film and they are to to an extent a little regretful that it will never continue on it's just a fascinating yeah fascinating practice of hollywood to throw so much money at something and then just kind of abandon it yeah and i mean it would be interesting especially from you know the perspective of a library to know how those films activate the books larson's books had achieved a certain fame Mm -hmm. prior to the release of the films within the united states 
but nothing on the level of the you know amount of fame that was uh, sent their way after those films came out. You sure, know, where you couldn't walk through an airport without seeing them. On the sure, board. sure. That's why. Uh, but we have to. I think that we're going to sound like we are on our high horse here, but I'll just say it anyway. It is always, <laughs> it is always much more interesting when you, in the modern era especially, when you see a book tackled by someone we would call an auteur and David Fincher, of course, because he has mm-hmm. his own signature. Uh, and then, which leads me into my my favorite category that we're going to talk about, and I'm going to bring uh, bring in Paul Thomas Anderson and Terry Gilliam here, who are also mm. auteurs in their own sense. This whole thing that we always talk about springs from the debate of someone who really loved the book saying the book was better. It's a quote. It's a hashtag. uh, It's a soapbox. There are films out there that that are based on books, and someone who read the book and someone who watched the movie love them equally. It isn't so much that the director of an adaptation is subversive uh, or defiant in a Kubrickian sort of I'm going to do whatever I want, Stephen King, Shmeven King, uh, and just throw mm-hmm. that out. There are these films out there. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson had Inherent Vice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Burton took on A Big Fish, and then and then we had Terry Gilliam taking on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by by oh, Hunter yeah. S. Thompson. Now the those three books are thick with atmosphere and thick with uh, you know very vibrant dialogue too, and the director is kind of doing their own thing, but celebrating that atmosphere, if you know what I mean, celebrating the vibe of the book. And people who have experienced both recognize that the vibe is linked in a yeah. way, right? I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, and, and that would be the argument for what distinguishes a successful adaptation from a, from a less successful one. Yeah. Because, I mean, the work of Thomas Pynchon, the work of Hunter Thompson, these are difficult books to adapt for a reason. There's right. a reason why no one had made a Pynchon film right. prior to Inherent Vice, because the books are really difficult to get on screen. They have their and own pace. Too. likewise with Thompson, it's anyone who's read Fear and Loathing is aware of his inimitable style Mm-hmm. And any filmmaker who's read it is scared off by how inimitable <laughs> his style is. How do you bring that to the screen in a way that honors what the author um, without losing the thread entirely? Yeah, it's guttural. Know, and, exactly. Yeah. And reasonable people perhaps can disagree about whether Terry Gilliam in the case of Loathing or Paul Thomas Anderson in the case of Inherent Vice succeeded. I mean... When you're going to bet big like that, you're going to inevitably rub some folks the wrong way who are going to say that this film fails Mm -hmm. or it descends into campiness or whatever the case may be. But at the very least, I think we can acknowledge that both of them and certainly, uh, yeah, I'd include Burton and Big Fish in there, too are trying to get to the spirit of the book, right? if not necessarily the letter of the book. And, And that that resolves the problem that I think we were talking about right at the beginning there, where you sit down with inherent vice as a doorstopper of a book. And it's, you know, just not something that as you read it, you think to yourself, Oh, right, here's this scene and here's this scene and here's oh, this is a piece of cake. We can knock this out. It is not plotted in the way that a screenplay is plotted and the work of adapting anything, uh, be it a novel or a piece of journalism to the screen is a matter of, implotment of taking a story 
and breaking it into discrete scenes that can be filmed for the camera. Mm -hmm. And it took, it took years. I think it took, he was in development. Anderson was in development for 10 years on, on uh, inherent vice before he got it to the screen. And I'm sure a large part of that time was just spent trying to wrap his head around this problem, how to break this into the kinds of pieces that you could reasonably put back together and have it look something like what you feel like that book captures for you. Sure. I, and I, I might even throw uh, Kubrick's take on Burgess's Clockwork Orange into that because that's mm. a book that's literally written in its own language. So how do you translate that? But again, I think Kubrick was successful in, in capturing the atmosphere that I was talking about of, of what it feels like to read that book. But when you watch Fear and Loathing Las Vegas and then when you read the book, you can say, well, this part wasn't in the book, but it doesn't matter. Or they they left out this one part, but it doesn't matter. You're truly pleased, I think. And to to go back with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, I think that we can say this for everything. And and I'm going to say a a very comprehensive, uh, put a period on it statement here for everything we've been talking about. The most successful film adaptations are distillations. Uh, distilling what the the book was. So if if Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to pick out and say, all right, well, it's about this guy who's sort of a detective and it's the end of the hippie era and he gets into hijinks. That's the, that's, albeit a very reductive, but distillation of what we're doing in Inherent Vice. The hope is that it just doesn't come off clumsily uh, in in the direction and in the final production. Yeah, Uh, I think, I think I would say you, when you're the filmmaker, you need to find the essential oil of the novel. Yeah. And the novels that really inspire you to do so are those almost necessarily where that work is hard. Mm-hmm. You know, the the speech in Fear and Loathing Las Vegas, where he talks about the wave breaking, is widely interpreted as the essential oil of an entire era. Right? Thompson the end said of it was that hippie movement. His favorite piece he ever wrote. Yeah. So then when you're faced with such a weighty uh, moment in literature, the question then becomes, how do you bring that to the screen? Is that going to be a speech that, that Johnny Depp is going to give to Benicio Del Toro in the car as they're driving? Or is this going to be an internal monologue? Or is this going to be some superimposed dialogue that we're going to hear in his head as he's walking along? I mean, there are any number of ways yeah. that Gilliam could have treated that, but he didn't have the option to not treat it. Because right. when you're working with these works of fiction that have built-in readerships. People are coming to see that, right? That's what they want to know. Mm-hmm. There's this extra category we have where people, and I and I feel like this is the main source of the clarion call of the book was better, and that comes especially mm-hmm. with uh, books from the fantasy novel and books especially that are appealing to, to teenage readers at, or things we read when we're young and that stay with us. That would, of course, be Lord of the Rings. That would be in the modern era, Harry Potter. And then even a little more modern would be Hunger Games. And, of course, Peter Jackson is going to spend years and years making arguably still standing one of the most epic trilogies of all time. And there's still some Tolkien fans out there who will say, you left out Tom Bombadil uh, mm. and what have you. Or, <laughs> or you know, Harry. it goes back to Harry Potter being a 390-page book, but a 130-page yeah screenplay you can't please them all and i i think that once we got into the the 90s and 2000s and hollywood really started ramping up production of adaptations of books that's where the the book was better debate comes in but yeah you know i think that we in 
in hindsight, we equate Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter because the film versions were being released around the same time. Yeah. They shared a similar readership or viewership. And in a lot of ways, they are similar. But it's worth remembering that the circumstances of their coming into the world were remarkably different. Mm -hmm. That New Line bet the farm on this guy, Peter Jackson, who at that point is not necessarily a farm bet of a filmmaker, Mm -hmm. to take this series of fantasy novels that were, you know, well-known fantasy novels, perhaps of the 20th century, but did not have the kind of visibility outside of the community that might necessarily merit that kind of thing. Uh, but all the same, they poured a lot of money into it and they let him make all those movies in one go, right? right? So that we didn't know until the time that the first one had already been released what he was doing down there. Uh, down there being in New Zealand where he's filming these. On the other hand, Harry Potter is carefully stage managed through the entire process of production. And the author of the novels is a producer of the film who is there on set with Warner Brothers, who has an enormous financial stake and has built an entire business model around how they're going to carefully monetize this uh, this goose that's laying golden eggs for them. Um <laughs> And still, despite how carefully they were managing it, if any uh, any objective person is comparing the first Harry Potter movie to the first Lord of the Rings movie, it's not a comparison. The first Harry Potter movie suffers from precisely the problem we're talking about. And Chris Columbus makes some really great films, but there's it's so conservative of a film, it's trying very hard not to offend the the legion of readers who have come to love this book that uh it's the choices that it makes are not to make choices mm-hmm. and and the film is is rather drab because right. of it which is not a problem i think for for peter jackson who has this fully realized world of lord of the rings that he's born uh on set in in new zealand um but i do think over time those harry potter movies particularly after Quaron's um take on the series which i guess is maybe the third one yes brings a certain vision and embraces the darkness of these stories in a way that gives the film series a language to draw on absolutely um, signature aesthetics and really can lean into the depth of the darkness of these characters that have inspired generations of readers Mm -hmm. so there's something about them that are really compelling. You know, everybody wants to hate and love Snape. So let's right. really dive into this character. Right. Um, yeah. I And I think by the end, the Harry Potter films are great films. Sure. Um, it just took a little while maybe yeah. for them to get their sea legs. Yeah. I mean, you know, nothing against Chris Columbus, but he's very good at delivering warm and fuzzy. And, you know, if you look at the villains in Home Alone, he's very good at making sure that... <laughs> Making sure that the the kids in the theater are never, not actually scared of the villain. I don't even. Know. I don't want to scare kids. I'll take that back. But yeah. but I do like what Quaron does, and then even what Mike Newell does when they come in. Yeah, uh, the the two one offs um, who who got to a swing at that. I wanted to move on to a new category, and uh, there are instances in which it is a very popular book and it is a bestseller, and the movie kind of flops it kind of is a a, a a bounced check so to speak and yeah. the most 
most recent example I could draw from is a big hit from 2018 in the literary world was Donna Tartt's Goldfinch, and it mm-hmm. was attempted to be translated in what very much looked like an Oscar swing. And uh, not only did no one go see it, but the critics were not thrilled as well. And But we also have these diminishing returns of Tom Clancy novels in a, in a post-Harrison Ford uh, world. Yeah. And even my mother's favorite authors is uh, Lee Child, who has the very popular Jack Reacher novel uh, series, A, that's a great that's a great setup. B, put Tom Cruise in there. It should be a hit. And yet, and yet it isn't. Um, so yeah, I don't I, know how that you happens. know there's a lot going on, and it reminds us that nothing is promised. Like right. you have to actually make the films. And <laughs> sometimes you make them and they're not interesting. Sometimes the decisions you make before you make them ensure that there's going to be problems. I mean, I will bow down before no one in my appreciation of Tom Cruise action movies. Yeah. I'm there for everything from Top Gun on to Mission Impossible 25. Sure. sure. Um, but as your mother perhaps can testify to, Jack Reacher is a big dude right. in those books. Right. We're supposed to be physically intimidated by Jack Reacher. And I'm not physically intimidated by Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's no way to get around that. Right. And so by by reimagining the core the core physical characteristic right. of your main character, mm-hmm. you're redoing the story. Mm-hmm. And maybe that can be done, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's certainly something for the filmmakers to talk about. I happen to actually think that the the uh, Reacher movie with Werner Herzog is kind of interesting, and, mm-hmm. and I'll rewatch it. But you're absolutely right that given Child's success as a novelist, you yeah. would think that we'd be talking about those films in the same way that we talk about Bond films. Mm-hmm. And we don't yeah. at all. No. Um, and same with Clancy. Clancy had a run of films in the 80s, obviously. But today we think of the TV adaptations seem to be gaining oh, more right. traction. Mm-hmm. And the video games seem to still be doing well. But uh, not so much the films. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it speaks to how Hollywood is so eager to to get those into production. When I was young, uh I was of the perfect coming of age point in my life when Jurassic Park hit theaters. And then as I started to feel like I could read more adult novels, I read almost all of Michael Crichton's books. Same thing happens when when Get Shorty comes out. I get really excited and I start reading all of Elmore Leonard's books. But when you look at what happens after Jurassic Park and after Get Shorty is you see Hollywood pushing forward lots of Michael Crichton adaptations to diminishing returns, lots of Elmore Leonard adaptations hit and miss some hits so yeah. it just speaks to hollywood's eagerness you know you're right although i think there's a lesson um uh, even a level more abstracted from there to take away from this cuz most certainly hollywood keeps going back to the same wells yeah um and sometimes that means writers be they elmore leonard in the 90s or raymond chandler in the 40s I wonder whether the trouble for literary fiction adaptations today stems from the fact that Hollywood has become even more risk averse because they've figured out a model of adaptation that is even more reliably successful for them. And that's the comic book novel. Yes. And while Marvel and DC have sort of cornered the universe, uh, so to speak, on those uh, adaptations, the logics that underpin them have percolated throughout the industry beyond just Disney and Warner Brothers. So 
the adaptation now can also the same calculus of risk taking has changed right mm-hmm. when why should we invest a ton of resources into adapting a novel that perhaps was a New York Times bestseller, but even in that only had a, a fairly narrow readership when we compare that to the number of people who are aware of the story of Iron Man or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. Um, it, it creates fewer and fewer slots in the studio's release schedule for those kinds of, of films. And ironically, leads to a point of, to return to your first question to me, those serial adaptations yeah. of novels, because novels are a perfect source text for the adaptation of serials, which is precisely what, you know, the streamers want from us. Right. So, you know, looking forward, I would not be surprised to see that literary adaptations more and more become a streaming staple and that the feature film is even more so dominated by, uh, you know, big franchises. Yeah. Uh, this has been a great chat so far, and I'm very excited to look ahead to the early fall when we can start to have a regular meeting discussion group in the form of a library program. And we really want everyone else's voices coming to the table on this where we'll be discussing books. I would like to end on a specific book, and it's one of it became I should say the book was the source material It became one of my favorite films when I was a child and to this day one of my all time favorite movies. It's The Princess Bride. Oh, yeah. William Golding, I believe, is the author. Goldman, yeah. Goldman. And uh, I see I know the film much more better than the book, which speaks <laughs> to my, my youth. I watched it a thousand times. Uh, Rob Reiner, of course, and that amazing cast. You get the narration of, of Peter Falk throughout as the storytelling device of the grandfather talking to uh, a sick child home from school. When mm-hmm. Peter Falk is leaving, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it, leaving the room, <laughs> and the young boy says, maybe you could come over and read it to me tomorrow. That's how you also feel about the movie. You, it's so fun that you want to watch it the next day, maybe watch it a hundred times. Could you share some of your thoughts on on this movie as a, as a little phenomena? Yeah. Well, I mean, first, I'd encourage everyone to, to check out Goldman, who is this incredible writer, both as a novelist and as a screenwriter. As a screenwriter... He's responsible for Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, all the President's Men. He knows how to uh, write a movie. And he understands how writing a movie is different than writing a novel. Um, But in the midst, at the peak of his success, he found himself uh, struck with pneumonia and in bed for a long time, which is where he gets the inspiration to write this novel about a kid who finds himself trapped in bed uh, with his grandfather reading to him. And so this novel... The Princess Bride gets born in the early 70s. And Goldman immediately understands the challenges of taking the novel that he's written and turning it into a screenplay. And so the central dramatic device of the movie um, has to be invented for the uh, purposes of filming the movie, of toggling back and forth between the Peter Falk, um, Fred, Fred, Fred. Savage. Fred Savage. Indeed. Sorry, Fred Savage. Um, you were the one who didn't show up to the uh, the cast reading the screenplay during the uh, 2020 elections. That's Indeed. why I forgot your name. Um, right. That the Falk and Fred Savage are um, reading this imagined book that's recounting this story, uh, whereas the novel imagines the discovery of these papers that have happened. So Goldman understood how you needed to set up these staging devices in order to make the story work. But he also understood that 
the characters are going to drive this story, whether it's being read on the page or whether we're seeing it on the screen. Um, and yeah, now obviously it's a modern classic and it, it will be part of what we pass down to our future generations. Sure. It's, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz of our time. Sure. And that this sprung from the mind of someone who was in the moment that he's writing it, conceiving of it, existing in both of these ways, and that we can see how the novel looks different than his screenplay. It makes for a really rare example of all of the things we've been talking about in action to be able to see how everything percolates differently depending yeah. on what the output is. There's very few films I can think of that winks at the camera in the same way that this film will will wink at you. There's, yeah, I mean, the first and best scene that comes to my mind is, is even more obscure because it maybe flies by, and it certainly flies by you when you're seven, is Mandy Patinkin <laughs> is giving this impassioned monologue to Carrie Elwes about uh, this journey of revenge that he's on to to avenge his father. And it it builds and it builds and there's music underneath him and Mandy Patinkin is just so intense. And then he and then he cracks and he, he kneels down and he just he puts his hand on his chin and he's like, oh, it's just been going on for a while now. I'm getting a little tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing about it right yeah. now. And yeah, so, I think you're right. Those, Goldman was a master. He's on the 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 short list of these screenwriters whose success is sustained over decades because they understand the importance of economy yeah. of of accomplishing as much as you can with as little i think of the enduring power of casablanca is that it is the best example that i know of this that we can move so efficiently from the beginning of the story to the end of the story without a wasted word right and the same can be said for all the president's men or for um, for the princess bride, that everything seems extraordinarily rich in detail when you're in the scene. And then when you step back from the scene and you think about how all the pieces fit together, you realize nothing was included for us that wasn't absolutely necessary to get us from where we needed to start to where we needed to end. It, mm -hmm. It's remarkable. If I could write like that, I... I would be uh, a very, very happy man. It's, but there are only a few William Goldmans walking the earth at any given time. And so for the rest of us, we should just be so lucky as to watch this. Movie. Sure. And that's why as we get ready to start this club, this group later later in the season here is I want that to be a bit of a refrain for when we're talking about more films in the future that are based on books. This refrain of, and it goes for the successful ones, but this refrain of it ain't as easy as it looks you know, uh, for <laughs> You know, All the President's Men is based, adapted from a book, Princess Bride. We've been talking about, obviously, everything being adapted from a book. And the, the winning achievements uh, are those movies that do understand that economy and move the story forward. And it ain't as easy as it looks. So that, <laughs> that uh, the book was better debate. I think we need to look at the film as a whole, as what it is. Someone, a director, a screenwriter, a director of photography, cast, dedicated five months of their life to this so we should at least sit with it and, and give it its its due its due diligence of debate well said and on that note we thank you <laughs> again for joining us brandon Cradell, and uh everyone stay tuned for more information about our new group where we'll be talking about how yeah maybe the book was better but let's really analyze the film so thank you again looking forward to it jeff thank you for having me and i'll look forward to the next time
was Brendan Cradell, Associate Professor of Cinema Studies at Oakland University. We talked about a lot of movies that are based on books, and we are very much looking forward to starting up a film discussion group. And if you listen to this episode, hopefully you will be the one signing up for it when that comes about in September. So stay tuned for that. And that is our episode for this week. It's A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and the music that you hear coming in and out of this podcast is by local musician Chad Stocker. Visit ferndalefriends.org if you want to find more information on how to support this podcast, or you can just follow us, like us, leave a comment, or tell your friends. And if you liked this episode, please share it to social media. Also, if you liked this episode, please, again, stay tuned for that forthcoming film discussion group. We'll be back again with more soon. Thanks for listening to this episode.